All right, I'm going to see if I can do this right. Okay, this is just for fun. Why did you do this, Allie? This is terrible. Oh, great. <laughs> this is Michael's giraffe. He's crying. Now, why did you do this? Cause. Cause is not an answer. Listen. <laughs> it works. I just use all the worst kids in the neighborhood. Would you? Look at this. Look what she just did. Try it. Try it. No, Ray. I'll do it. No, 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 no. Okay. Ellie, let's talk about what you did. I don't want to talk. Are you feeling angry? Reflect back. <laughs> you're, you're angry. Yes. Okay. But it's not okay to rip up toys when we're angry. Uh, 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 judgmental. <laughs> you are angry because. Um, because it used to be your toy. Yes. <laughs> I see, I see. You think that uh, mommy and daddy pay too much attention to Michael and Jeffrey. Right, okay, I was handling this. They get everything. Right, and you're upset because we gave them your old giraffe. I still liked it. But you weren't playing with it. But that doesn't matter, though, because <laughs> it was still yours. And you're mad because we gave it to Michael without asking you, right? Right. Well, uh, mommy and daddy made a mistake. And, and everybody makes mistakes, right, Mommy? Yes. Yes. Do you feel better now, Hallie? Yes. Can I have a giraffe? Well, it's broken, honey. I know. I want to try to fix it for Michael. Aww. 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 <laughs> 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 See what I did there? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Can't believe it. It's pretty amazing. You did it. Anybody else need taken care of while I'm around? Yeah. What? What's the matter? We're not jumping with you, obviously. Don't go by me. I'm a natural. You know, one of the biggest pieces, it's so funny when I actually watched it, I'm like, oh my gosh, they actually use the term active listening in this clip. So, And they say reflect. I actually use those pieces when I'm helping people with uh, dealing with conflict resolution. <laughs> so anyway, I had to throw it in there just to start things off because it is definitely, again, it's super challenging to deal with recovery issues that are big and heavy and you and they're in intimate close relationships and you're not sure what to do and you're not sure how to listen and you're not sure how close to be and you're not sure how connected to stay with this person and how much to say okay you know done like you know mom was like done and dad's like reflect and so it is it's it's a hard balance what i'm going to start off with is some of the pieces on how to bring about spiritual recovery in the midst of use. So this is um, this is one way. <laughs> 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 
Most of the new arrivals seem incapable of conversation. They just stare at their hands in despair. So, you know, <laughs> look at all of them. They don't have phones. There's no phones in heaven. Oh, my gosh. What are we going to do? Okay. <laughs> the reality is recover me. recovery will not still be going on in heaven. You will actually be there and already recovered. Uh, that's one great thing. However, so this is, this is straight from our, our, our brother Shane. Uh, input from him on what is specific to spiritual recovery in the midst of um, dealing with addiction in groups. So, one of the things that they've attempted, they've uh, really found to be successful here is that you can do mixed addiction groups. That's what Broken Chains is here in San Diego. That's also what Celebrate Recovery is for anybody that's ever been involved in Celebrate Recovery. What that means is um, you can, in a spiritual addiction recovery group, cover a number of different addictions within that group. You can, because actually a lot of the processes are very similar. That doesn't mean that that person doesn't need specific help individually as well, or another group that is specific to their actual addictive processes. Um, So what's common to some of these groups is the peer-led version. That's what AA is, and that's what a lot of the supportive community groups are. Peer-led groups can be incredibly powerfully effective because it's led by somebody who can really relate. Um, it's not led by a professional like somebody like me. It's led by somebody who goes, I get it, I feel it, I'm with you. So that level of, uh, you know, especially in the spiritual realm, is super, super important. So like... Uh, was shared earlier, there's individual recovery, there's group recovery, there's group family recovery, there's couple recovery, and then there's spiritual recovery. And so if you can be in different um, groups where you get all of those needs met, highly, highly important. For those of you who didn't get to be here last night on Fridays, if you're, uh, all the scriptures, are, are, they're not going to show up much in this one, and they kind of haven't the last couple hours. Uh, they were kind of all bunched, and they're all put on Friday night. So if you want a lot of the scriptures that apply to spiritual recovery, please go ahead and send that, uh, me a note at jenniferconson at yahoo.com, and I'll send them to you. One of the pieces that uh, Shane mentioned was, uh, we don't do enough psychoed, actually. Even in the broken chains, he said one of the things I would add and, uh, is that we need more psychoed. In other words, we've already hit it a couple different times in the classes here this weekend. Education about addiction can in and of itself help with recovery. Just the factual information can, oh, be very, it's not an end in and of itself, but it can actually really aid in people's processes. So this is actually common to all group work, is having very clear rules, uh, zero tolerance for breaking those rules. This is key to group work. Uh, for instance, uh, in a spiritual recovery group, it's going to be that we're going to use the Bible as our authority. So if you go into AA, um, it's not going to actually they'll say it's the greater power. In other words, it can be any kind of different authority. You can go to Celebrate Recovery, which is um, we'll use Bible as the authority. So uh, using the Bible as the authority, seek that everybody there is to, be, to say, I want to be in recovery. Um, this is key. Making sure that you're a part of groups that are confidential. 
that you know that what you share there, nobody's going to share it outside of that room. Very, very important rules about punctuality. Um, uh, that you need to be on time, and if you're if you're not, please, ah! please don't attend. Um, and when you look at this piece here, the um, the no use allowed during group session. <laughs> you know, when people are in the middle of recovery, some will say some groups are uh, that act, no use even in between. Well, good luck with that. So the reality is, uh, like I had an I, I had an individual come into a group that I was running, and she was clearly drunk. Um, we went ahead and had her leave the group, and then she met with me for an individual session. We processed her her whole relapse, and then she came into the group the next week, and we had some repair. So, but they can't be there for the group while in any kind of use. Um, this is important. Uh, People get very triggered by slang terms. That's why I actually shared, and I didn't again today, that sometimes some of the things that we're talking, if you're the person who's dealing with use, these, some of these things that we're talking about might actually re-trigger your use. Um, and so one of the things that's helpful is only use the medical terminology and don't use the slang terms. Um, so that's actually a really healthy rule to have in groups. Yeah. <coughs> So to say uh, use the slang terms for the actual drugs being used or to use the slang terms for the actual uh, way that it's used instead of saying cocaine, you know, instead of saying meth, amphetamines. You use the, all the other slang terms. And so if you didn't get a catch when we did uh, this morning at 9 o'clock, I had a bunch of the slang terms on the screen. Um, now, definitely, if you have the opportunity to be in discipling relationships, uh, some of the groups, in fact, uh, that's key to this one here, is to make sure that you are in other relationships outside of the group where people are helping in your overall spiritual walk. Um, so that's key to spiritual treatment, is that what are your other resources um, I am. I might run a group as a therapist, but who are you getting with in your ministry? What other couples are you getting with? What other individuals? What other minister? Where's your other support outside of this group? Um, are you? Do you have somebody that you're super open with? Because honest feedback and biblical challenges are important. So not only is it happening outside of this group, but that it's happening within the group. That. Um, you are all giving honest feedback to each other, and you're giving biblical challenges. Actually, whenever we start, my husband and I start a small group, we started off with a discussion on, is everybody here committed to giving feedback to one another and receiving feedback from one another, and that we're going to use the scriptures to give that. And so that's going to be a super healthy way to set up a group. Yes? important too that it, as a disciple if we have all these other groups we're attending or going to three different yes. groups so just to really let those people know so the, the challenges like why did you miss this so it's important that you figure out what the rules of play are and that you can make that commitment. Okay. 
This is a big one. This is straight out of um, Some Satin Darkness, and it's used in the Broken Chains ministry here in San Diego, is uh, writing out every single situation that's happened in use and the pain that those use times caused, then showing uh, what kind of, where did things progress in the use, reveal the consequences, and then share the journal with the group. So this is one way of using journaling. Journaling is a common technique in psychotherapy. This is one way of using journaling within a spiritual recovery group. Okay, so this is a reflection of some of the groups you can actually be a part of here. So that being said, I'm going to show you some of the clinical pieces on relapse that I use that are hugely important. So relapse prevention is key. Number one, how did understanding how, what was the sequence that led to relapse? Number one, usually what you see is rationalization. Well, it would just be this one time. Well, I just, I just, um, I got a raise and I need to go celebrate. Well, I've been doing really good. Well, and you get all of these thoughts that go through somebody's mind that actually leads to the behavior. So that's why you first want to find out what were the rationalizations. What were they actually saying? What were the thoughts that led to the behavior of relapse? Then what was, so you're having all these thoughts ahead of time. Notice that that's ahead of time. Then a trigger happens. You lose your job. Your girlfriend breaks up with you. Your husband does something that's very painful. Your child is going through something really tough. Your best friend uh, just had a suicide attempt. Your dad is this. Your mom is this. I mean, there's, your job is this. There's a huge number of triggers. So what you want to do is when someone's relapsed, you want to take them through this process <laughs> if you're helping them through. You can do this even on a lay basis, like, so what were you thinking, and, and so what triggered things? It's actually healthy and good to bring people all the way through this. Then, where did the craving come from? This is actually a CBT technique, uh, the automatic thought um, so for those of you who are interested in the clinical end of things, learning how to do an automatic thought record, extremely helpful to deal with some of those rationalizations that started up here. So the craving came jumping in. The trigger happened. The craving came jumping in. And then came the belief of, if I just do one, I'll feel better. If I just go to that donut once, if I just go, you know, press that button on the the, the machine at the casino wants it. I do, I'll only do it. So I know I, you know, it, it's enjoyable. So it's, that's the pleasure enhancing belief that I, you know, that's the, I, I did really great this week and I just want to have some fun. So paying attention to the fact that most people end up pursuing use of some kind because they believe that there's some kind of stress relief or pleasure that they're going to receive. Then they go ahead and they give themselves permission and they rationalize the use. Sometimes people don't. Sometimes actually people skip that part where they just shut down and it be and it's just I'm just going to do it and not think about it. So that part I would say can kind of go two different directions. Then the use happens and this is what's key. Remember we talked about growth through relapse. This is where the growth needs to happen because if it doesn't happen right here, this is what happens. That if you don't go, okay, I blew it, I relapsed, and now I'm going to grow. 
then you end up in out-of-control use where the spiral happens, okay? So one of the things that I do when people are either they've already relapsed or I feel like they're in danger of relapsing is I show them some stuff. Here are some. This is just a taste of high-risk situations. So if someone is bored, if they've just gotten a paycheck, certain smells might trigger them. Uh, certain relationships, if they're around certain people, hearing other drug stories. Sometimes people go to uh, certain kinds of um, support groups and it's, they just start hearing the stories and it just, they, they can feel their pulls all of a sudden a lot stronger. Um, they're under a lot of stress. Work is stressed. Child relationships become stressed. They're their spouse, they're in high conflict. Their mom and them, just they just had an argument. Um, the, the holidays are coming up. Holidays and special events are huge triggers. So when I'm working with somebody in treatment, we talk all the way through the holidays. We talk all the way through the birthdays. We talk all the way through Thanksgiving and what's going to happen and who's going to be there and what are they going to say and what are you going to smell and what do you, you know, because holidays have a huge trigger for many. Also, people similar to boredom, um, if people are feeling isolated, that might be their trigger. When they feel alone, nobody's there for them, that might be their trigger to whatever their addictive behavior is. And then definitely if people are dealing with chronic illness and chronic pain. So this isn't everything, but these are some of the big triggers. So what? remember we talked about, uh, when you look at this one here, it starts off with a, a belief or a rationalization. So there's some kind of thought that goes through, and then the trigger happens. So in other words, someone's already at this spot where they're like, you know, I'm doing pretty good, and then they go to the holiday event. You know, um, 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 all those people, they don't know what they're talking about, and I'm going to look at trigger thoughts in just a minute, and then they smell something. So usually the thought and the trigger happen pretty close to one another, and it's important for people after relapse to go, to go through this and figure out what was the kind of thoughts that went through my head, what were the triggers that came up. One, there may be more than one. So some of the stuff that uh, I literally give this list to people, I heard you say about three of these things in our session today, and I wanted to point it out to you. So I'll actually share that with them. They'll say things. The most common ones are, I can do it by myself. I owe this one. Then you've got the depressive versions. I wish I was happy. People saying I don't care. My problems can't be solved. So you'll get the really negative words and the positive words. Nobody cares. I feel hopeless. I can't do it, so why try? I'm depressed. Okay, those are the negative phrases. But then you've got um, the positive ones. I can do things differently this time. Um, I can handle it. So people will do both, either positive phrases or negative. And this is a really helpful list. It's just, is there anything on here that you've said this last week? And I actually don't tell people. I'm, I'm a sneak. I give them the list and I say, are you know, any of these things in your mind right now? And they'll circle them. And then I'll tell them, these are signs for relapse. It's not very nice. But it actually helps people raise their awareness of the danger that they're in currently. And then... I apply this if they've already gone through relapse. I use this both to prevent the relapse and if they've already gone through relapse. And then I apply it to this. You know, okay, so there was the thought. 
there was the trigger, and then it led to this whole process and the spiraling down. Okay, so now in that picture, some of the things, some of you have asked this, um, uh, how can you tell if somebody's about to use? Um, most relapse actually happens during withdrawal. The early, this is the very, very early stages, the first several weeks. Um, I start having problems with one or more of the following, thinking difficulties, emotional reaction, overreaction, sleep disturbances, memory difficulties, becoming accident prone, starting to experience. So this is early on, post-acute withdrawal. Um, and actually different drugs, post-acute withdrawal lasts for different periods of time. Certain drugs, um, it's pretty quick. It comes out of their system pretty quick. Alcohol actually lasts forever. Certain drugs stay in the system as in they're no longer actually medically causing uh, things to happen in the body, but um, there's other long-term use effects. And so post-acute withdrawal can actually be anywhere from days to months. So be aware of that. Also, if someone's returning to denial, they stop telling people how they think or feel. They start trying to convince themselves or others that everything's all right when, in fact, it's not. So this has to do with what we know in James. That um, actually, First John one that you know we need to be open. We need God is light, and in Him there is no darkness. You know that if we confess our sins and come into the light, then we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from sin. So that fellowship with one another is predicated on I'm in the light, I'm talking. So that piece, returning to denial, starts off with I stop telling people how I'm thinking or feeling. So that's really key. If you start, now I'm I'm loading you up because the reality is some of you are going to go, yes, I saw that in her. I saw that in him. I'm giving you some things to pay attention to, not so that you use them as weapons against the people in your life, but so that you can then go, ah, okay, they're in a dangerous spot. And then you get some help with how to help them. All right? These aren't to be used as weapons. Because sometimes you'll end up with defense, that you'll see avoidant and defensive behavior, and it starts to worry you. That when you point something out, and they're like, what? Why are you asking? It's like, uh, that's, that's not a good sign. And you're right. It's not a good sign. It's not time to attack them. It's a time to use your awareness to realize there might be something more going on, and they might actually be in danger. Um, also, if you actually start to see a crisis build, like you see a job situation coming up, you see, and this is both, this list is nicely worded because you can use this as the person in use. That might be some of you here. You're the person trying to manage your own uh, recovery program and making sure that you don't end up relapsing. So pay attention to your crises building. I start to notice that ordinary everyday problems become overwhelming no matter how hard I try. I can't solve my problems. When you are in that, this kind of comes to the trigger thoughts, when you are in that spot, up all your care. Go to more meetings. Get open with more people. Make sure you're on your knees more. Up all your care. And these are all things that you can pay attention to in the middle of use so that it doesn't end up. This is relapse prevention. These are the signs to pay attention to. Um, If you feel stuck, even just the wording here, I start believing there is nowhere to turn and no way to solve my problems. I feel trapped and I start to use magical thinking like everything will get better and if I would just and it will all be solved and I'll just ignore it. When you start noticing those things, big, big, uh, I call them red flags. Uh, 
depression, uh, so we're going to hit co-occurring um, literally the next slide here. If you start feeling depressed, I start feeling down in the dumps and have very low energy, I may even become so depressed that I start thinking of suicide. So depression and anxiety are two of the big, big, big red flags when it comes to mental health that you need to pay attention to. If you start feeling those symptoms, that's where you up all your care and so on. If you start noticing that you're starting to pursue compulsive or impulsive behaviors or that the person that you love is, um, where? Now, this is important. Maybe your drug is cocaine, but all of a sudden you start eating more. You start noticing unusual, like, impulsive, compulsive behaviors with sex, a, a compulsive behavior with caffeine, nicotine, at work, gambling. So, in other words, it... Your actual addictive process might be heroin or cocaine, but you start noticing compulsive, impulsive behaviors in these other areas, or you're noticing it in the one that you love. Those are signs of possible coming up relapse. Yes? And when you say up your care, you mean like yeah. let your therapist know maybe I need yep. to do more than once a week? Yep. Or? Up how many times you see a therapist, up how many support groups you go to, up how many people you're getting with to shore up your support, up your level of openness, all of it, up your care. Yep. Um, if you're noticing your urgings and cravings getting stronger, I begin to think about that the alcohol or the drug is the only way to feel better. I start thinking about justifications to use. Okay, those are all the, the rationalization thoughts coming in. And then chemical loss of control. I find myself drinking and using again to solve my problems, and I start to believe it's all over till I hit bottom, so I may as well enjoy this relapse while it's good. So that's where you catch it before it spirals. Okay. So very important processes. Let's talk about uh, how this affects when there's actual depressive and anxiety symptoms and other mental health problems that go along with the use. Um, the reality is often you'll see two or more problems within one person. Mental illness and addiction can be two sides of the same coin. That's a, that's a, very, that's a very helpful view. Uh, one actually plays off the other. So. A dual diagnosis, what it looks like is dual diagnosed patients are often misdiagnosed, undertreated, and shifted between mental health and chemical dependence treatment units. In other words, okay, now they're, in, now they're in depression stuff. Oh, now we'll put them in a rehab. Okay, now they're back to their therapist for depression. Now they're going to these support, you know, and then they're tossed back and forth when actually what they need to be in is in a dual diagnosis program that actually deals with both. It is more common now. And so finding one that deals with both is very, very creative. The treatment program should, should be designed to meet their multiple needs if someone is dual diagnosed. The substance abuse field can make strides towards coordinated treatment by cultivating awareness of the complexities inherent in dual diagnosis. It's, it's a lot more, honestly, it's incredibly rare that someone is using and they don't fall under a dual diagnosis. And so putting them in the correct group for that particular diagnosis has a huge impact on their recovery. So what happens is 
you've got this, the back and forth thing. Uh, they call it a revolving door sometimes. Mental health agencies treat the mental health disorder, then they release the client with medication. But when the medication runs out, the patient turns to substance abuse to self-medicate, and eventually they end up referred to a substance abuse agency. And then they end up recovering from substance abuse agency, and they go back to the mental health agency that puts them on the medication, and so this is actually a really common process. That's why uh, going to a process that's dual diagnosed is hugely helpful. Yes? Um, well, to me, I think part of the problem is that whole mentality of two sides of the coin. Because it's not really two, because that's what you're doing. It, it is the coin. coin. It should be yeah. a candy cane or something. Yeah. Oh, I like that. Yes. Yes. It's, yes. It's not a dichotomous view. It's a very interwoven view. It's, it'd be... It's so nice to say it's black or white, and it's not. It's, it's way, way, way much more complicated than that. This, uh, yeah, so then the agency sobers the client up, the process with its inattention to the interactive, the candy cane, effects of prescribed medication and illicit drugs can lead to hallucinations, delusions, depression. So what happens is someone's getting medication for their mental health, right? But then they're using drugs, and and it all so going to a program that's wise to all of the interactions that can occur medically and physically is very very important. So there are some different models. Uh, the four models uh, that are this is one way of looking at it anyway is the common factor model suggests that the risk for psychiatric illness and substance abuse increases due to exposure to one or more independent factors. In other words, uh, when you combine the two, psychiatric illness and substance abuse, there are so many more factors than just this one piece. So that would be what you call a common factor model. Uh, secondary pathology means long-term psychiatric disorders are caused by substance abuse and would not have developed otherwise. So this is the view that the substance abuse started first and then somebody ended up with the psychiatric problems. Then there's a secondary substance abuse model. The substance abuse caused the primary psychiatric. So it can go both ways where I am mentally ill and so I use. It can also be I use and it causes mental illness. Sometimes it's, it's what I call the chicken or the egg. You can't actually tell which one came first. That's why a dual diagnosis uh, can be much more helpful because it's so intertwined. Several, the bi-directional model, meaning several different factors may contribute. Okay, so yes. So, um, can you have like mental illness that leads to substance abuse, and then you can have on top of that a secondary cycle and have you know, uh, where you end up having more mental illness? Yes. The yes. 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 And so they may come up with several different diagnoses. Um, the reality is once mental health gets involved with substance abuse, it is super hard to detangle them and figure out what started what. But you can end up with multiple diagnoses that apply to that person. Um, whether they're, because actually you can have psychotic symptoms that are completely caused by the drug itself, but the psychotic symptoms can also be caused by the mental illness. And it's a little hard to tell. Sometimes they have to be in recovery for quite some time to figure out what the actual issue is. 
and what you're treating and how you should treat it. So actually for those in the addiction program that I run the supervision for, um, they, they have a 30-day where they, can't, they actually they can't leave the facility, they, can't, they don't go on any drugs, they, then they actually do the mental health diagnosis after they're dry for about 30 days. Because they're actually trying to see, is drug-induced or is this a psychiatric illness that we actually need to medically treat? It's, and, and 30 days is nothing. Just on your first uh, part there with common factor model, uh, yeah. are you saying that, that uh, you can have an addictive gene? So that is one of the, I, this is just, these are models that uh, are out there in the uh, substance abuse treatment world. Um, and this is one of them that will say um, there's one or more independent factors such as genetics. In other words, it can be genetic, it may not be. As far as what the research shows, there is no research to support that yet on whether it's genetic or not. Um, there is early research saying, well, there's a predisposition and we find it on this little part of the gene. But it's super, super early in genetic research when it comes to substance use. So are there people that uh, they'll go from one addiction to another addiction to another addiction yes. all their life? Yes. They'll go from you know, cigarette smoking to yes. alcoholism to yes. cocaine. Right. But Multiple, what you call polyaddiction, where they just switch between addictions, and once they recover from one, then they start using the other. Yeah, big time. So that's more what somebody asked earlier about the, um, the addictive personality, where they just switch from one to the other. Yeah. Okay. Um, so... Most individuals with a substance abuse addiction have multiple lifetime comorbid disorders, some common ones. These are the most common. So this kind of answers a couple of your questions there is. Uh, what you'll have is multiple diagnoses all for one individual. Mood being bipolar depression, anxiety being another, the actual substance use, maybe they have ADHD, and so on. So you can have multiple uh, if you were here on Friday night, we actually went over the actual diagnoses. And, um, yes, you'll end up with multiple either addictive behaviors or multiple diagnoses, as you were asking earlier. Is that why, like, anxiety medication like, is also treated for, like, depression, too? Or? Yes. Um, anxiety and depression are <laughs> two sides of one coin. Um, they are very intertwined. And so, actually, sometimes what will what psychiatrists will um, give is the anti-anxiety medication to help with the depression. And sometimes they'll give depression SSRIs to help with the anxiety. So they're, they're quite interwoven, and it's a shot in the dark to see which one helps the person in front of you. Yeah. So with dual diagnosis, it's really hard because if someone's on a medication, you know, how much does that get involved in their illicit drug use? Uh, it's hard with prescription drugs because they can actually start with taking more or for longer periods than necessary. So it's, a, it's like, well, I actually need this because I have these different challenges, uh, Xanax being one, uh, sleeping medications being another, highly addictive, some of the sleeping medications. So people use them because they have a legitimate need, and then what happens is they end up in an addictive cycle. So... Um, Helping people, actually the end, the number one reason that people with depression, um, when they come and see a therapist, is helping them actually stay on their medication if they're on it is, is a key in treatment. So, 
some of the stuff that you'll see when there may be a dual diagnosis is behaviorally, you'll see a withdrawal from family, work starts being a problem, school, a loss of interest in things. So this is what you'll see with a typical depression diagnosis, loss of motivation, money issues. They, they start, they, you start seeing, hearing stories and they're not making sense. So what you'll see physically is a change in appetite and weight, the eyes sinking. They'll fre uh, frequently express that they're sick and they actually have flu-like symptoms. You see what looks like intoxication, even though they haven't used alcohol. Their complexion changes. That, of course, this is the meth. You're going to see this with meth and heroin. Uh, falling asleep at odd times, tremors, twitching, excessive scratching. So when you're trying to figure out what am I looking at, you're, you might see all of these, where you're seeing behavioral things that reflect. This is a clear reflection of more of a depression diagnosis. This is all a clear reflection of a substance abuse diagnosis. So um, it is important to pay attention to and treat both. Um, all right. I'm going to actually show you something. We already talked about all that. So with alcohol, what you'll see here is major depressive disorder, um, substance abuse that can cause symptoms. Major depression, alcohol can cause symptoms of major depression and of dysthymia. Um, you'll notice that the sedatives, so these are the depressants. So you'll, somebody will think they're depressed. Actually, they, they might be in use. Uh, then you'll see the stimulants, they'll actually look like depression and they'll look like mania. So that would be if someone's using meth or cocaine and they're stimulated, then you'll actually, it looks like mania when actually it might be the drug itself. Um, they haven't done enough research on cannabis. <laughs> that's why that's blank. Hallucinogens will actually look, uh, will uh, cause depressive disorder the episodes, what they call depressive episodes. So these drugs will actually cause episodes, and then it's a little hard to tell with the depression first, the chicken or the egg. And then inhalants, this is huffing where you're spraying and you're breathing it in. Um, again, can mimic both. What you'll notice is PCP these, and then the, the stimulants are mostly associated with mania. And then... Prescribed medications that can cause psychiatric symptoms. So this is stuff that someone's taking, and then they end up having mental health symptoms show up. So, I mean, wow. <laughs> Look at this. Antihypertensives, anabolic steroids, anticonvulsants, Parkinson's stuff, ulcer medications, oral contraceptives. Look at that. Taking the pill can cause major depressive symptoms and dysthymia. It can cause, it has been known to cause psychosis and anxiety. So things that you think, well, I'm just, why am I so depressed? There, there are actually, it might be some medications that you're on. Um, <clears throat> asthma, insulin, these cause anxiety symptoms uh, because they're actually stimulants. So it is important Oh, it's so helpful to me when I can send somebody to a really good specialist and to a really good psychiatrist, and then they can go, and they ask the questions I forget to ask, and they're like, so what medication are you on? Oh, well, actually, that medication causes X, Y, and Z. We need to change medication. I'm like, oh, thank you. I wasn't sure what I was seeing. So it's really important, as far as with medications, MDs are only somewhat trained in psychiatric medications, and they're the biggest prescribers. 
of mental health medications. Your MD has very little, they, they barely know the DSM. Psychiatrists are usually much more, that's their main training, is in the DSM and in medications for mental health. So it is important when there is a question about whether a medication is problematic, make sure to ask somebody who will know. All right, so now this is when it's a substance abuse and a sexual addiction. So this is co-occurring addictions. Schneider actually presented in Congress on this data, very helpful. Congress was looking at some things. And so in her um, research, this is what she found. Three to six percent of U.S. populations with addictive sexual disorders also have a concurrent substance use. So the sex addiction and the substance abuse are at the same time. 70% of cocaine addicts are compulsively sexual. Actually, what happens in the clubs, um, in the, both in heterosexual clubs and homosexual clubs, is they'll use cocaine to boost sexual experience. And so that's, then, it, then they get addicted to the cocaine, and that often they'll use it because they're having erectile difficulties or they just want the higher um, explosive orgasm. So cocaine and uh, sexuality become very, very intertwined. Meth addicts are, uh, the obsession with sexuality is high. 40% of meth addicts, 47% of cocaine state that sexual fantasies triggered their drug use. So they were having the fantasy, then they get in, honestly what happens is that there's an insecurity about their sexuality and so then they therefore go and use. Uh, what you'll see with women predominantly is alcohol. It's, you won't see the hard drugs. You'll see alcohol. They're insecure about their sexuality, so they'll drink to loosen up their inhibitions and have more fun. And then with their spouses, not even if, to go out to a club, but they'll actually go ahead and use alcohol to lower uh, their inhibitions so that they can be more involved in the sexual relationship. So it becomes quite problematic. And then the substance use um, then becomes just as addictive as the sexual cycles. Substance abuse, highest concurrent addiction is with sex addicts. The highest co-addiction with substance abuse is actually sexual addiction, actually higher than uh, depression and anxiety. Sexual addiction usually goes untreated because of the chemical relapse. So what happens is you do have to focus on the most, when I get people in and it happens regularly, they come in with that dual addiction where it's sexuality and drugs. Actually, I've had people come in with sexuality, eating disorders, and drugs. Okay, you're dealing with three behaviors that are medically dangerous. <coughs> the first thing you actually deal with is the chemical use. You have to bring them down and detox them before you can deal with the others. So you, you go into medical mode and first get them safe and then you can start dealing with the other addictive behaviors. So how do you treat particularly sexual and drug addiction when they co-occur? Um, one thing that isn't actually realized is that it's an unrecognized, sexual addiction is an unrecognized cause of chemical relapse, of, of a chemical dependency relapse. Tendency for the addict in early recovery to intensify the untreated addiction. So that's what you were asking about, about these multiple addictions. So they'll, th this happens really regularly. That's actually when if you go to an AA meeting, okay, what are they doing on their breaks? They're smoking. What else are they, what else are they doing? What, what, what? Coffee. What else is there? Donuts. Coffee, smoking, and donuts. Sugar, caffeine, and nicotine. What are the 
not those three, but what are the three most addictive substances? Alcohol, nicotine, and caffeine. They're the three most strongest addictive substances. So I'm not doing this drug of choice, the cocaine and the heroin, but I'm going to a meeting and I'm surrounded by other addictive substances. So what happens is the switching occurs very regularly with somebody who just uh, uses addictive processes to deal with their emotion management. They're, they're, they're feeling things emotionally, and so they just switch around the different addictions. Early identification and treatment of a dual addictions and trauma. Oh, this is really key. If you don't deal with trauma, then you end up with much more repeated dangerous acting out. It's really challenging because this comes up. So I've, I mean, literally, this comes up in my supervision every week. Jennifer, this person's come in. This happened this week. Uh, one of my supervisees, she said, I've, I got a new, uh, this is at the, the rehab, and they've been sexually molested, they've been physically molested, they've been, and, and the, the amount of trauma in this person's life is huge, and we're in a rehab where the whole focus is recovery, and you're not allowed to do trauma work, supposedly. And one of the things that I help them see is there's a time that you'll be able to get to the trauma, but just not right now. First, get them in a good recovery program. Get them solid in dealing with their addiction. Then it may not be, because the, the program uh, where I'm at is six months long. So it, you may never deal with the trauma while they're with you, but you may be planting the seeds that when they f do their follow-up therapy after they leave rehab, they can start dealing with the underlying trauma. It is crucial that trauma is dealt with for long-term recovery in uh, addictions. Yes? Is it, would you say it's true that if somebody has a trauma and they've continually gone to using yeah. uh, and never have dealt with that trauma, yeah. that it's probably harder even in the long run? It is. It is. It is. But it is crucial that the treatment includes that at the right time. Is, is the big piece. All right. So how do you treat both? You have to deal with the dangerous practices along with the chemical uh, dependency because they go hand in hand. Um, you'll also see a where the relapse, where compulsive sexual behavior precipitates the relapse of the substance, the continued and treated presence of an addiction disorder can inhibit recovery. So that's why a program that deals with both, that's what you call a reciprocal relapse. So in other words, they're, they're not just in a drug recovery and they end up doing the sexual behaviors. Their relapse is both behaviors at the same time. That's what you call a reciprocal relapse. And so that's why putting them in a dual diagnosis program, there are very few drug and alcohol programs that actually deal with sexual addiction. There's one here. I think I've got it on the slides at the end that comes to my mind here in San Diego. So it's important if someone is dealing with both sexuality and drug that you put them in a program that will pay attention to both. And of course, then there's money involved. So, oh yeah, here's my AA comment. And then uh, often what you'll <laughs> so there's 12 steps right in the 12-step program, and then there's the 13th step. So the 13th step is getting into a sexual relationship with someone else in the AA program. It's extremely common, and what it often sometimes you're just got to pay attention to it is it may be a reflection of the fact that they're actually stepping into their sexual addiction during their recovery. So, all right, so. All of these addictions have all kinds of commonalities. There's usually a feeling of euphoria. There's also a feeling of satiation, which means I feel better. So it can go both directions. 
Um, the pattern generally with addiction is first you've got the fixation, you've got the pleasurable arousal, or you've got the lowering of the negative emotions. Then you get repetitive use, and then it results in one of these two areas, satiation or release, and or release. So that's pretty common to all of the addictive behaviors, the um, behavioral addictions and the drug and alcohol. And then you end up with uh, what's, what's common in all of them is distorted thinking, rationalizing, justifying, defending, denying, making excuses, and blaming others. <laughs> you know, and you guys are living with it, so you already know that. The, I love this quote. This is by Schneider. This is the gal that did the presentation to uh, Congress, and she's talking on sexual addiction and drug use, focusing treatment on the addictive process rather than on a single addictive behavior, can more easily uncover the destructive addictive dynamics. Okay, so where it's not just the alcohol that you're looking at or just the drug, it's the actual, that's, that's the question that's come up a few different times when it's not just that particular substance or that behavior, it's the actual I use because that crosses over the addictions. So that's why prohibition failed. Yeah, prohibition didn't work very well. Okay, so there is, uh, as far as with trauma, sometimes people will use um, medications and so on, drugs illicitly and legally to numb out pain, or they'll use eating uh, to numb out pain. That's hugely common, uh, especially with the women that I work with that have eating disorders. Um, that's, that there's trauma. Almost the, the percentage of people with eating, disordered eating and trauma is extremely high. Trauma is a primary precipitant of, of addictive behaviors. Recidivism, recidivism rates, that means somebody that goes back to the actual use is super high if you don't deal with the trauma. Addiction serves as a way to block the traumatic memories, often. Okay, so in particular, I'm going to look at this one here. If you're not dealing with trauma if you're not dealing with sometimes people have social anxiety and so they use because of social anxiety I love this quote this is actually from a woman who was in recovery for quite some time and what happened with her therapist that was really helpful and she says it was when I met a therapist who focused on my lifelong social anxiety my learned isolation and the adult challenges and fears about truly connecting with people that I was able to evolve healthy adult relationships boundaries and real intimacy this is a person who actually went for chemical recovery treatment. But the, one of the biggest things that made a difference is that somebody dealt with the underlying anxiety that was going on. So um, that's, again, your dual diagnosis. There is a social anxiety disorder in the DSM. <laughs> it's actually a disorder. Um, there's all kinds of incredible names in the DSM for the problems that people have. And so she's saying here, when somebody finally gave some time and some focus to this piece, then I was actually able to fully recover. So very important to pay attention to all those pieces. Yeah. Is school phobia and social anxiety disorder, would they be related? What phobia? School phobia. Like being phobic about going to school? Yeah, because often it has to do with sounds, the number of people. It can be. There can be all kinds of different reasons for that kind of of issue, but um, often what happens is when people are, are challenged by crowds, if, if their anxiety levels go up, and so any crowd situation, it can be on their job, it can be at school, um, it can be in a, actually it can be in an intimate one-on-one -on -one relationship. Social issues bring up their anxiety, and then they use their a behavioral addiction or their substance addiction to manage that anxiety.
Yeah, big time. So specifically in dealing with, we've been hitting a lot on depression, and I wanted to hit anxiety before we were done, is uh, teaching anxiety management techniques are so important during therapy. The first thing, actually, it's funny, when I'm working with all of the, the, the trainees, and the, uh, I, I'm like, the first thing you do is what? Teach them how to breathe. <laughs> teach them how to breathe. Teach them how to breathe. The second thing is teach them how to relax. And so we actually practice in supervision how to teach people to do relaxation techniques. Very, very important. Um, because what happens is when they get fear arousal, if anybody knows anything about what happens with the brain, when you're in high anxiety, the brain kicks into gear. Major. And what does it do? Who knows what happens under high anxiety? What does the body do? Fight or flight. So the palms start to sweat. Hence, I stuck my hands up. The heart starts to beat. The respiration. <sighs> so that's why you have to teach breathing and relaxation when you're dealing with anxiety. Uh, and encourage exercise. I'm like, did you go walking? Did you go running? Did you go to the gym? Again, this deals with bringing down those. If you're using the gym so that... You're on the bike like this. That's maybe not helping. Like, I don't know, cycling, you know, you look at cycling. I don't know if that helps anxiety, but maybe. If it helps you, awesome. But finding the kind of physical involvement that brings down anxiety is huge. Um, this is what's really important. Oh, this is really important. Do not deal with trauma until you first taught these management skills. Until you've taught breathing. Until you've helped somebody with... Uh, um, relaxation. You do not go to the trauma yet. That's dangerous because what can happen is when you start helping them, and I actually had somebody who um, shared with me that they went to somebody who was learning how to deal with trauma and they had just taken a class and so they decided to try the techniques out on them and uh, spun them. Spun them out of control for a half year, a year, because if, if those techniques aren't used along with relaxation and breathing and all those management, uh, the, the re-traumatization can sometimes actually be worse than the original trauma. So very, very, very important on how to deal with anxiety. Um, slowing people down is important. Learn each little step. Use medication if they're not responsive to relaxation training. So that, that does happen. But again, if you're dealing with the substance abuse along with it, that's going to be super challenging. Um, you, but you want to, if you're going to use medications, make sure they have a low ability, uh, probability of abuse. You don't want to use Xanax. That's, that's highly addictive. So making sure that if somebody's going to be put on an anti-anxiety medication, it's one of the ones that doesn't have the high potential for addiction. All right. So we've already talked about depression, so I'm going to go here to the end. Uh, yeah. All right. Treat the poly addiction. Find out how other addicts, addictions Im impact relapse. Treat most serious and life-threatening addiction first. So when it's substance abuse disorder, that's the first one. Combine addiction counseling with therapy and relapse prevention, early recovery, and combined sexual and drug treatment, sexual differences, difficulties are greater. So that's really important. All of those things start to go together. All right, we have a few minutes. So I was like, I'm going to be done. So at least we have a few minutes of questions. So questions of any kind uh, from this whole weekend. Yeah. 
In terms of insurance, or uh, I guess severity, or how it's viewed, um, do you think there's a difference between a diagnosis of anxiety over one of depression? Whether insurance will cover it? Well, no, just in terms of how they view it. I mean, it's probably a different ICD code. It is. And is one viewed as more... Depression uh, instead of anxiety or substance use? Anxiety versus depression. No, they're pretty much hand-in-hand hand and are handled pretty much the same, even with the insurance companies. Good question, yeah. Um, I have a family member who goes to AA yeah. and really treats it like a church for themselves, actually. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. I, I don't know how... I don't know how to, like, help them not see it so much as a church in this sense, mm -hmm. but kind of, because I mean, they're not a disciple, so I want to be mm -hmm. able to have them come to church, be able to talk to people, mm -hmm. like engage and have friendships. So like, how would you see best to like get that in motion? Yeah, there's actually a whole chapter in Sunset and Darkness on that exact question on very gently and very slowly helping people build the reality that, um, because AA has kept them sober and has kept them alive, and they still need to be connected to that, and yet can they, you know, helping them slowly build their faith in God and see their need for the body, that is a process. So I would recommend go ahead and grab that book and read that chapter. It's really good. Um, Some Sat in Darkness by Mike Leatherwood. Yes. So we're talking about the process of relapse. Yeah. Um, so you can look for symptoms, you can look for yeah. statements or whatever. How, like, how lengthy of a process is that typically? Is it like this person is, like, actually deliberately thinking about it, or uh -huh. their behaviors are thinking up with behaviors they used to have, and so sooner or later their thought process is full too? Yeah, you know, it's actually surprising. You'll, when you actually uh, work all the way through the relapse of somebody, sometimes they can have symptoms for a year, if you are the person noticing it in yourself or if you're helping somebody who's noticing it, you're noticing it in them, you want to you wanna help, if you can, help them immediately. Because you don't know where in that, are they, is it tomorrow? Are they that close? Or are we about a year out or a month out? Uh, the reality is, yes, that can actually be drawn out for quite some time. It can be absolutely immediate where they use that day, that hour, they walk out of my office or away from you. Yes. So it's one of those, what, you know, about Jesus is coming back, right, and should, we should always be prepared. You know, it's going to happen at any time. That's basically, yeah, a wise response. Other questions? Yes? I just want to mention, Ricky, it's not totally ironic that someone would think AA is church because initially it started as a Bible-based, right. Bible-based yeah. problem, yeah. and then they yeah. secularized. Yeah. No, I'm not claiming it's church, but it's yeah. church. Yeah. Questions, yes. Um, so, like, how do you get started? I mean, if you see, okay, we have a need, you call yeah. this place? Yes. Yeah. So, <laughs> on these slides, I've stuck at the end of them. I just didn't show them to you. So, again, send it to me. On the end of three of the five classes are a zillion different recovery places. Honestly, one quick number to know, call 211. 
So you call 211, you say, this is my issue, and they say, oh, we've got one for you right over here. So that's a quick remember. You don't even have to look at my slides. Call 211, and they'll tell you what the resources are. Yes? How do you help um, a family member or a friend that doesn't think they have a problem, but yeah. it's clearly affecting them, and yeah. they don't want to seek treatment Yeah. Yeah, and that's actually one of the most common issues when you've got family members that you care about. Um, the uh, We actually talked about this a little bit. Go listen to, did you come here this whole weekend? Listen to, that's okay. I just wanted to check. Uh, listen to some of the early recordings. We actually addressed that directly because um, the first thing is, is you've got to plant seeds, and that's sometimes that's all you can do. So this is somebody that you would, they're in the pre-contemplation stage. They're not even thinking they have an issue, and so there are specific techniques for for both a therapist and for somebody who loves somebody in that situation that you would use that just plant seeds. So specifically, that was the treatment one, which is number three, four, number four, uh, when uh, the fourth class in this series. Oh, big, big time. Get help for yourself. <laughs> big, big time. One last question. Yes. Right. Yeah. 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 And how and how old are you? Can I ask? Yes. So that's actually one of the challenges is you've got teenage kids in families and in relationships that are like, oh my gosh, Grandpa so and so and Uncle so and so, and you can really see it, right? Um, in all reality, the first thing to do is actually. Uh, self get educate yourself so first of all go learn about what you're seeing and this is and this is very challenging when you're a younger person you might be in your 20s and your 30s and it's your mother and it's your uncle and it's your grandfather so it's not just for a teenager but it's actually for anybody with someone who's older has a position of power over you whatever and what do you do with that sometimes all you can do is first of all go learn yourself about it and then you may say oh hey <laughs> I went to this conference. You'd probably really like this. And what I call third-personing it, where you say, so, you know how Aunt Mildred struggles with this? Oh, you got to listen to this class, and we can both help Aunt Mildred. Like, you might not be able to do it directly for various reasons, but you can get them to listen to something and then just pray. <laughs> that when they listen, they go, hmm. Now, there may be a time where you can directly go, and this would be what you call an intervention where you go and you sit down. And this is going to be your best case scenario. You sit down and you say, I want to share with you some concerns I have. And um, the point that uh, Mary Shapiro made in, when we did the, um, the panel was that sometimes all you're going to be saying is not, I'm concerned you're addicted to something, but you describe the behaviors. I noticed this, and then you said this. And then you did this. And they will usually take those. They won't take the addictive words. But they'll take the behaviors you're describing and go, yeah, I did. And then you share, I'm, I'm concerned. And I want to share with you why I'm concerned. So there's a dual way you can approach things from kind of behind by doing what I call third-personing it. But then you can also sit down and have a direct conversation. So we're going to finish, but you are welcome to come and ask any questions.